Well, parts of Oppenheimer Park are going to start reopening to the public. As you likely know, the park has been fenced off since May. That was after the tents were cleared. Campers were given the option of moving into temporary housing in hotels and other locations. But we now also know the price tag to fix the park, to get it back to a state where the community can use it as a park. And it is a hefty one. Joining me to talk more about this is Pete Fry who is a Vancouver City Councillor. Pete, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Uh, $450,000 is the price tag. It looks uh, like uh, that's what it's going to cost to get to the park back to that to a usable state. What's your response to that uh, amount of money? Well, so I mean, that is a figure that was, was dug up uh, from staff requests uh, by your colleagues over at Global. Um, and I think that's just the cost of actually remediating the park and fixing the water mains and, and, and the sprinkler systems, irrigation, that kind of thing, uh, replacing the topsoil. Of course, there was actually considerably more costs associated with the servicing of the park during the during the um, uh, homeless encampment that was there as well. So I think the, the costs are actually probably, if you evened it out, would be considerably more than that. Um, but it's obviously money that could have been better spent uh, in other uh, more proactive measures to address homelessness in our city. So it's frustrating for sure. And as we see it rolling out with the same group of activists in the, in, in the same kind of context, except in a larger park, and I anticipate we'll probably see a similar bill for Strathcona Park at the end of it. And not that we can go back in time and redo it, but does it point then to if the end goal was to move people into temporary housing, to offer people that type of housing, if, if that action had been taken sooner, uh, the price tag likely would have been a lot less? Yeah, I, 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 would, I would assume as much. I think, you know, when we look at parks, they're just not built for that uh, kind of heavy intensity of use and, and as, as encampments. So they suffer sort of a disproportionate amount relative to say if it was you know a, a, a gravel vacant lot or something like that that was a little bit more resilient to that kind of activity and I think that's a big part of it um, of course the, the the decamping of Oppenheimer Park was really a result of, of, of not city action but a provincial health order uh, that in anticipation of COVID had moved folks into hotel rooms which uh, really I think the city can't take any credit for that or the park board uh, do you do you have any idea at this point? And I know it's difficult as far as accessing the tent city that's now in Strathcona Park, uh, but there seems to be some confusion. As on the one hand, you hear that the people who were living in Oppenheimer, two hundred sixty-one people, were moved and given housing, but then we also hear that a good portion of the people now living in Strathcona were, in fact, people that were living in Oppenheimer. Do you have any clarity on that? You know, I, I hear that anecdotally, as you sort of alluded to, our, our own city staff have been uh, prohibited from actually sort of surveying um, the, the folks in the encampment. And there's, there's obviously sort of a, a rotating cast of folks who are, are not just uh, unsheltered, but, but doing other activities. There's chop shops and criminal activities that are also going on. There's activists that are operating the camp. So it's, it's a pretty fluid dynamic. Um, but yes, anecdotally, I've heard the same. But like I said, we haven't been able to go in there and ascertain who's, who's who. I know uh, there is going to be a, a protest held tomorrow. This comes after we're learning uh, of uh, a threatening uh, action that was taken by a man wielding a chainsaw. Uh, have you heard any more details on, on what happened? I know Vancouver police made an arrest, but or, did you hear that as it was mm-hmm. happening or hear anything more about that? 
Yeah, yeah. No, I got lots of my, my phone started pinging off the hook. Um, and then I since met with some of my neighbors who uh, witnessed it firsthand. I guess the gist what they saw was some people running terrified uh, from a guy wielding a chainsaw. They first heard the chainsaw and um, the intended victim was circling a, a car that he ran into traffic, circled a car, managed to get inside the car uh, for safety. And uh, the police arrived on the scene, went looking for the guy, and apparently he he ditched his jacket and and chainsaw in a in a in a in a tent, and it was uh, so I, I believe he wasn't. Uh, I think that made for some confusion with with the apprehension and arrest of this individual. So when you um, I oh. understand he's been released since. Right. So when you say he ditched his jacket and chainsaw in a tent, do you know if he was a resident of the tent city or did he just happen to ditch his stuff there? I, I don't know. I, 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 the implication was that he was a resident of the tent city, but I, I honestly don't know. And when you talk about the, the victim, the person in this case, I mean, talk about terrifying. Here's somebody that you're running from somebody with a chainsaw. And the safest thing that you do is to hop into uh, the car of a stranger. I mean, that's got to be terrifying for the driver of that car, too. He, he or she probably didn't know what was going on. All, all the way around. My, my, my friends who told me the story were, were having a little goodbye party and there was a lot of children involved. And it was just a terrifying incident for uh, witnesses as well. So I think terrifying all around. Uh, and I'm sure terrifying for the attending police officer uh, going after a guy with a chainsaw. Uh, have things gotten worse there even in, say, the last couple of weeks? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we've seen that there's been, <clears throat> there was, uh, yeah, there's been a pretty significant uptick in, in issues. Um, I think the community has been a little bit more proactive as far as uh, sort of protections around the school. We've put up some new fencing around around Strathcona Elementary School in an effort to mitigate some of that. But I think the, the scene around the camp seems to be getting a little bit more desperate as the, the, the weather starts to worsen. And I think um, a lot of the supports, the sort of volunteers around the camp may not be as present anymore. Uh, certainly there's been a, a real shift in the dynamic. I'm, I'm not visiting the, the camp at all, so I can't speak to what's happening in the camp. But uh, the sort of collateral impacts around the neighborhood seem to be more profound. And is it because of the danger that you're not going near that area? Uh, yeah, you know, there was, uh, <clears throat> I had uh, gotten involved protecting a woman who was being accosted by a, a guy in the neighborhood. And uh, as a result, um, activists in the camp had sort of run a bit of a smear campaign and tried to paint me as a, as a vigilante. And, uh, and <clears throat> you know, frankly, I just, I don't really need that kind of, um, um, you know, I just I have to be aware of my own personal safety, and I don't really want to get myself in a situation. I'm not really that kind of guy. I sure. intervened in a situation where a woman was being threatened with violence, but I'm certainly not a vigilante. I've lived in this neighborhood for 30 years. Um, but frankly, because that narrative was out there, I just didn't. I don't want to deal with it and get myself into a confrontation with people who may be of the mistaken impression that I'm some kind of vigilante and need to be dealt with accordingly. Sure. No, absolutely. Are you taking part in in the action that's happening tomorrow? Uh, I I may attend by and just and and, and say hi to folks, but um, you know I think there's some some of the messaging that's coming out of that is is a little misguided, and I'm worried that that some of the asks that are coming from the community, including the relocation of the camp, aren't really sort of the direction that anybody's prepared to go. So one of the asks has been to relocate uh, the the camp itself, and I think where we see a more appropriate response 
uh, would be to take care of unsheltered people. But we're not going to relocate a camp that has, you know, chop shops and predatory criminal behavior going on uh, and dysfunctional leadership. We're not we're not sanctioning that. And I think that's uh, unfortunately where some of the ask is coming from for this this uh, some of the folks tomorrow. So I, I, I'm a little trepidatious to, to endorse that. Certainly, I, I, I hear the frustrations of my neighbors on a daily level. Uh, both housed and unhoused, and I think the situation is untenable. And I'm urging my my colleagues at council that, that in the absence of of any senior level of government stepping up to the plate, that we're going to have to do something. Uh, and recognizing that because we're in an election now, the province is not going to be making any bold moves. So we really have to take this on because it's only getting worse, and it will continue to get worse. But as far as the message tomorrow, I, I want to be clear that. But I, I, I don't think relocating this existing camp to some other location is a solution at all. Um, we do need to focus on dealing with folks who are unsheltered. We do need to remove the criminal element that's operating in our parks. And I'd sort of leave it at that. Uh, are you hearing from people then, because it is two, two very different issues. One, if we're talking about people who are homeless, who need help, who are looking for housing, and we're talking about people who are running chop shops and taking stolen bikes and doing that criminal activity. I mean, they're, they're two separate issues. Is there a frustration that even if we can't deal with the homelessness, that, that law enforcement isn't cracking down on what is criminal activity happening right out in the open? Yeah, no, it's incredibly frustrating um, because, and I think it unfairly stigmatizes folks who are unsheltered and have no other options uh, but to seek refuge in this sort of encampment, which does serve a function and, and a community kind of function. But um, but it's also being taken advantage of by predators, and and we do know that there's you know <clears throat> with a large unhoused group with folks who are you know many, many or some of whom are using drugs and stuff, it does and there's criminal activities going on. It does bring in predators, and I think that that's uh, it creates an unsafe situation for everyone, not just the house residents, but folks who are who are seeking shelter in the encampment. And so I, I, I do think it's unfortunate that that folks unfairly get stigmatized by virtue of the fact that they're houseless, but they're also sort of lumped in with the criminal element. And that's why uh, some of the push from my colleagues and I at council is to really address the issue of unsheltered people and focus on triaging them and getting them the supports and housing or whatever it is that they need uh, so that we can separate them out from the criminal element that's exploiting them. All right, we are going to take a short break from talking about the election, from talking about COVID-19, and uh, from talking about tent cities. It does seem like we talk about those three topics quite a bit. But I want to bring your attention to a lawsuit, and it is an interesting one, and it deals with seven Canadian families, some right here in BC. And to explain exactly what's going on here, we are joined by James K. Fireman, personal injury lawyer with Samfiro Tumor. Markin, LLP. James, thank you so much for being with us. Jill, thank you so much for having me on the show and for giving me an opportunity to shine a light on an issue that really affects many families across our country who are forced to rely on sperm donors in order to start families. We don't spend a lot of time talking about it, but you're right. This is something that has an impact on a lot of families. So take us back to the beginning of this. How did this all start, this this road that has led to the lawsuit? Sure. So there are seven families across Canada who have each purchased sperm from one particular donor in the United States. And there are other families out there, not in Canada, by the way, but I'm representing seven families from Canada. 
And so each of these families decided to purchase the sperm of this donor based on characteristics they were told that this donor possessed. They were told that he was highly educated, um, that he worked as a cytogenicist, uh, that he was most importantly healthy, and that he had been thoroughly vetted and screened genetically to make sure that any children conceived from his sperm would also be healthy. And it turned out that none of this was really true. He was working as a lab technician. Um, he did not have, I think, post-secondary education, um, or at least nothing uh, that was put forward. But much, much more importantly, uh, he had this, uh, this genetic marker called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, CMT1. And what this, this is a progressive genetic disease that results in deformities and physical difficulties that starts as early as five years old. Uh, but it can, it, it can start as late as 25 as well, too. And it gets worse as the children get older. And it can be very debilitating to the point where these children wind up in wheelchairs and are very limited in what they can do. And and in this case, then, is this something that, medically speaking, that they would be able to screen for? Yes. Yes, they absolutely could. Um, they held out that they did thorough genetic testing, um, obviously not thorough enough to catch this. Um, I'm sure they will take the position that what they did was standard, but we would disagree very strongly with that. And in any case, it certainly wasn't what was advertised. Uh, so well, we're talking about this as well, because I know the fertility laws and laws around purchasing and acquiring uh, sperm, other ways uh, to deal with uh, infertility are different in Canada than elsewhere. Uh, so did, did you say they purchased it or is this something that, that how did they how did they end up applying for this or choosing this particular donor? Well, I'm really glad that you brought that up because this isn't something that is well understood across our country. Our laws are make it very difficult to purchase sperm. In fact, you can't donate sperm for money in Canada. Um, You can use from a known donor, and there are rules and regulations around that, but if you don't have a known donor, someone who you know that is prepared to donate their sperm in order to help you start your family, you have to rely on a sperm bank, which means importing it from someone outside of Canada. can't do it. And so there are distributors in Canada that facilitate this, and you you wind up relying on what they tell you and what's being told to them by the sperm banks elsewhere, particularly in the United States, States, where the regulation is spotty at best and varies a lot state to state. So in this particular case, how many families, uh, seven Canadian families, did they all have children or how many children were, were conceived and were born from this particular donor? So I I don't know the final numbers because we've just started the litigation, and that's something that will come out. I do know that there are others for sure. I don't know whether there are others in Canada. I know that there are some in the United States, um, certainly. And as I understand it, there are families in other countries, even as far away as Australia, that have uh, started families with sperm donated from this particular donor. I say, you know, I'm uncomfortable using the word donor. They're paid for this. This isn't something that they're doing out of the goodness of their heart. And to me, that just adds an extra element to it there. I mean, there is a profit motive. Right. So is the allegation then that the the donor or or the the person who gave the sample, that that person lied and the company didn't double check or that the company knew this and still put it forward anyway? I don't have any information that would prove that the company knew this, but at the very least, 
They knew that they were not doing nearly the kinds of background checks and testing that they suggested that they were. And you know, what's really interesting, Jill, is the way this was found out is one of the mothers, all of the mothers are in a Facebook group together and they discuss with each other so that their families can have a connection because their children are biologically related. And one of the mothers found out the identity of the donor on her own. They're not supposed to be able to do it, but she was able to figure out on her own, just going online. She's not a detective. She just went on Facebook and figured it out and saw a picture and saw a deformity in the picture and thought it might be a good idea to get her kid tested and did that and found that it had the CMT1 and then notified the clinic of it and turns out, yeah, the donor has it. So it isn't something that they couldn't have figured out on their own, and I know this, because one of the mothers figured it out on her own by herself. So very clearly had they done even just a superficial review of what they were being told, they would have figured it out, but they don't do that. And it's, you know, the implications of that are terrifying. So, and at this point then, how many of the children, do we know how many of the children have tested positive for for this condition? So, of the Canadian families, five have uh, tested positive for it. Uh, and the, the others, I believe, have chosen not to be tested. And that's just a personal choice that uh, they've decided um, in terms of how they want to cope with this information and how they want to proceed with their families going forward. And that's certainly an understandable choice as well. And what are the families looking for as far as compensation? Well, it's really impossible to, to put that into monetary terms. I mean, you think about what this does to a family. Um, you know, there, there are certainly monetary costs to this. Don't get me wrong. There's testing, there's therapy, there's treatment, there's assistive devices that may be needed. But you know, beyond that, I mean, just think about the impact that this has on a family. I mean, I, I have two young kids. I don't know about you, Joe. I have two young kids. I go to the park, I see my kids play. They fall down. I don't think too much of it as long as they're not hurt. But for these families, you know, they go and they see their kids playing. If they fall down, they're not just worried, oh, my kid might be a little bit hurt. They're worried that this is the first sign, that this is where it starts every time that it happens. And you think about how that is going to impact your relationship with your children and how that impacts your family as a whole. It's impossible for someone who isn't going through it to understand. I certainly don't. I certainly don't. So you ask me, how do you put a number on that? I have no idea. I, don't, I have no idea how you, would, how you would quantify that. But haven't they come up with a number that, the, that they're seeking $30 million? Sure. But I, I mean, I, I don't know that there's an amount of money in the world that you could pay them that would make it worthwhile for what they've gone through. There just isn't. There's, I, it's something that you can't put into monetary terms. If you start a, a civil lawsuit in Canada, you have to put it into monetary terms. So, I don't know, $30 million, sure. But you know, what is that worth? There's no number that's high enough. There just isn't. This, this is a case, too, and at this point, allegations, and they've launched this lawsuit against uh, the uh, the company uh, is the hope that it will lead to tougher laws when it comes to screening or when it comes to accountability yes absolutely that would be a fantastic outcome uh, every single one of the families wants that and, you know the the families many of them had hoped to continue growing their families they didn't want to stop at one they wanted to have siblings and ideally have siblings that were that were completely genetically related and so you know, it's something that is still an issue for them, remains an issue for many of these families, and certainly for thousands of families across across the country, families with you know, same-sex partners, um, single mothers, uh, families with fertility issues. There are so many people that are in this position 
that this affects that yes that's absolutely one of the objectives Uh, Do you think that it's possible, and again, seven families so far involved in this lawsuit, do you think it's possible there are other families? Are you looking to to tell other families if you think you're also, uh, you also perhaps have got sperm from this donor to join the lawsuit? So my understanding is that once the, uh, the sperm bank became aware of this, at some point, and there's some question as to how quickly they reacted to, and that's a whole other can of worms. But at some point, a letter has been sent out now that has notified all of the families that have children conceived from this donor. And so they would all be aware. And I don't expect that I'm going to find any more in Canada, but it's possible. Uh, Once we once the litigation has really started to move forward and we have full disclosure from the defendant in this case, then we'll have a more certain idea of whether or not there's anybody else out there. All right. Well, James, we will leave it there. But thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk a little bit more about this. Appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me on and giving me an opportunity to shine a light on this issue. I think it's really important. Well, earlier on in the program, we were talking with Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry. We started talking about Oppenheimer Park and the price tag of the remediation work there and getting it back to the state where it can be reopened to the public. We ended up talking about Strathcona, the tent city there in that neighbourhood, as Pete Fry has lived in that neighbourhood for many, many years. But we want to also check in now with Katie Lewis, who is the Vice President of the Strathcona Residents Association. Katie, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Well, thank you. Uh, I know you've, you've talked about uh, what's been happening in the neighborhood and a lot of the concerns of residents. So we actually were going to talk with you earlier on in the program, but I understand there was another incident. Uh, what's been happening there today? Every day, <laughs> different experience, I would say. Um, I always joke that each week couldn't be worse than the last, and then I continue to be surprised. <laughs> um, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, our our neighborhood is just under siege, and it's really been really challenging. Uh, and let's go back to uh, the the alleged chainsaw incident because I know you you came on the scene. You were you were there quite soon after it happened. How did things unfold, as far as you understand? Yeah, I mean, I I ran. <laughs> I wish you could have seen me. I like I literally booked it down. Um, um, I had heard that there was a situation um, and that um, someone had come at someone with a chainsaw to try and kill them. So it was a pretty serious incident. Um, and and this is unfortunately what has become normal in Strathcona. Um, and, but I ran, I ran, <laughs> You know, I ran down and I interviewed the witness and I um, I talked to the person, uh, you know, for an, probably like an hour, actually. Um, and we had a nice conversation and it was challenging. But like, yeah, someone tried to literally kill him. So that, that's uh, where we're at. And that person, from what I understand and from what from Councillor Fry was saying, um, actually took refuge in a complete stranger's vehicle. Yeah, totally. So, um, oh, this poor guy, man. Like, I actually really feel for him. He was so traumatized. Um, he um, he ran, and his partner they ran, and they they totally took 
refuge in a different vehicle um, because it was safe um, and they had no choice. Um, but it was still like it was just a really traumatizing experience and not acceptable. And um, again, it's just an escalation in Strathcona and everything. Like every week, there's something else, right? Like. In this particular case, uh, police did, they were called, many people called them, police attended, uh, they they did arrest a man, but uh, we understand from VPD uh, that they weren't able to hold him in custody because uh, at that point the chainsaw had been dumped. Uh, this man was, was somewhat of the description, but not exactly the description. Um, how concerning is it to you then that either way, whoever did this is still, is, is still at large? Oh, it's totally concerning, right? Like, we have a video of this guy, right? I don't know how many more pictures we can get. Um, Like, we know that someone tried to, like, take down people in our neighborhood, and that's not acceptable, right? Like, and and we are tired of it, and we are weary. And um, I think it's unacceptable and um yeah and 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 we're there right like our our neighborhood has just been under siege for weeks uh, there is a, a protest, uh, a movement happening tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Uh, do, do you think anything, will this draw more attention to it? Or what are your thoughts on on the group that, that plans to gather tomorrow morning? Yeah, I mean, tomorrow is a group of residents that had come to me multiple times, and I respect them, um, that the fact is, like, nothing is happening. And if this wasn't in Strathcona, this would be dealt with. And I think that is a lot of our frustration. Um, We're looking to our political leaders to step up. We are looking to our provincial leaders and our federal leaders, like, how dare you let this happen on your watch? Like, we demand better of you. And, you know, in, in Strathcona, we're just feeling the real brunt of it. Um, and it's not, you know, um, we're, we encourage people from the camp to come out to tomorrow. Like, this isn't a us versus them situation. This is like, like, we're just, we're just dying, right? Like, we just need help. Uh, do you, Has it gotten worse or uh, more difficult to try and get the attention of people who would be in charge of this uh, because of the election? Totally. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, John Horgan, I wish this was your election issue. It's not, but... Um, I'm going to remind you of it every day. (laughs) Um, It's uh, like we have absolutely been challenged by, by these things. Um, And it's not, it's not an easy, like I'm not a difficult person to be honest, um, but I'm very disappointed in our provincial government. And I'm very disappointed in their response to what they're doing to this. Um, and I think it is inadequate and it is not great and it's unfair. 
All right. Well, Katie, I'm glad that uh, that you're okay, and I know you dealt with another uh, incident of an attempted break-in uh, today. Uh, we'll talk to you again about this, I'm sure. Uh, but thanks so much for making some time for us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Well, if we were somehow able to go back in time a little bit and change how we responded to COVID-19 in the beginning, would that make a difference? Do we know enough now to know that had we taken different action, maybe the spread wouldn't have been so much? Well, my next guest is an assistant professor in the UBC Faculty of Medicine's Division of Infectious Diseases. And Jeffrey Joy joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, this takes a look specifically at testing and contact tracing. So can we look back and see that had we done things differently, we could have prevented such a wide, wide-scale spread? We can look back and see that, uh, that the efforts that we did employ initially were very successful at containing the first incursions of the virus into North America and Europe. And we can show that it was then the later introductions that led to uh, the outbreaks that, that have devastated both continents. Um, it's true that if we had been more vigilant and rolled out earlier testing, more comprehensive testing and contact tracing, we could have done a better job of limiting the spread. And would that have been in addition to, say, um, stopping flights earlier, uh, suggesting that people wear masks earlier, or do we know if it would have been, you know, in addition to measures like that? Yeah, if we'd if we'd been following up on cases a little better, that would have led to less of a less of a spread. The other thing that um, we could have done slightly differently is um, the results of the work that my colleagues and I have done really highlight the value of viral surveillance architectures, the systems that are in place to give us an early warning of of these kinds of things before they get here. And that gives us, buys us valuable time to prepare. And then the other thing that we could do differently would be using the available data as it comes in to uh, use a near real time surveillance of the virus to help direct public health efforts and link outbreaks. Uh, this study also looks particular, specifically at Washington. And I remember it seems like a much, it seems so much longer ago. It wasn't really that long ago, though. I remember so clear the day that there was the first death in Washington state when we saw the outbreak there. What does this study find about that outbreak? Well, specifically about that outbreak, um, the, the first case that happened in Washington state was an individual who arrived in Washington from China, and that was before the travel ban. That individual followed the CDC guidance to the absolute letter. He did everything per- absolutely perfectly, um, and the, he was isolated immediately. Contact tracing was employed, and it seemed as if that was the end of the the first case, and, and in fact, it was. Um, later, there were a bunch of cases, and yeah, the, the first death that you're talking about um, happened, and there was some thought that those cases were connected to that initial case, and what we should was actually no, it was a second introduction that led to that outbreak and, after the travel ban. And do we know where it was introduced from? Uh, from China, after the travel ban. So it most likely was... Um, somebody from the United States returning home from China.
When we look at, at what's happening, even in other provinces right now, seeing the increase in numbers in Ontario, uh, when we saw what was happening earlier on in Italy, parts of Europe that were were farther ahead, I guess, uh, than Canada in the infection rates and dealing with this, are, are we also able to learn from how they responded? Yeah, uh, and, 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 and you know, we we in a sense are a few weeks behind everyone else, so we can learn from what what's happening there. Um, and we can also learn from the first case in in Germany, which was a, again an introduction from China into Bavaria that led to 16 or so cases in um, an auto parts plant. But the Germans did an excellent job of contact tracing and testing, and they again um, were able to quell that first incursion into into Bavaria. And it was again a second introduction into Italy from China that led to the big outbreak there. So I guess the things that we're we're already doing, contact tracing, mask wearing, um, social distancing, those things are those are valuable tools that help us depress this virus. And and do we learn from that then, do you think, as far as moving forward, there's so much talk now of, of the second wave or it coming back and coming back in cold and flu season. Can we learn from that? Or, or is it, I mean, obviously it's too late to do these things before the virus arrives, but can we learn from the response to tinker or kind of tailor the the, the response that we're going to see in the next weeks and months? Yeah, I think we can, we can pay attention to the guidance that public health is giving us that because we know that from these these examples that it works really well, um, and we follow that guidance, and hopefully the, that will reduce the severity of, of these things. And I want to again say that another thing that we could be doing is more in the way of using the genomics to do near real-time surveillance to help public health link outbreaks and, and direct efforts where they're best needed. To do that, though, would we have to um, do what some other countries are doing as far as rapid testing? Uh, I, I also think that, yeah, rapid testing would be another good thing. More testing is, is a good thing. Uh, the song is a good clue as to what we are talking about. Don't worry, we are not body shaming anyone. We are simply taking a little break from all of the politics and the more serious news to uh, highlight an annual online competition. It is coming back this week and, well, a lot of people are pretty excited about that. Here is our show contributor, John Jang, with more on the competition. Good afternoon, Jill. It's that time of year where people have to exercise their democratic right and vote. Vote for change. Vote for justice. Vote for Fat Bear Week 2020. Yeah, that's right. This annual bracket tournament is back, much to the joy and delight of the internet, where Fat Bear Week has kind of become the next big thing. Imagine Shark Week, but with a lot more hair and a lot less fish. Well... Maybe the fish part is debatable. Brooklyn White is the media ranger at Katmai National Park and Preserve in Alaska, where these fat bears live, and she can explain what this is all about. Well, Fat Bear Week is an annual tournament celebrating the success of the bears on Brooks River, um, located in Katmai National Park and Preserve. So in conjunction with the Katmai Conservancy and Explore.org, We put on a tournament, kind of like a head-to-head bracket competition that pits bears that have shown successful gains of fat throughout the season, all in preparation for hibernation. 
So we are not fat shaming. We are truly celebrating the hard work that goes into survival for the bears on um, the Brooks River and truly all throughout Katmai National Park. Now, as mentioned, Fat Bear Week is nothing new. In fact, this has been going on several years, which means, yes, there is a defending champion. That champion, big, fat, powerful. Her name is Holly. And I asked Brooklyn, is Holly the favorite in this, or can we expect new young blood competition to perhaps change everything we know about Fat Bear Week? Uh, you know, that is a great question. Um, 435 Holly, who is the reigning champion, um, have gained some momentum even as we released our brackets on Friday. But um, she actually has a spring cub that is competing against her this year. And this cub um, has really gained um, kind of an audience following through the Explore.org bear camps. Um, she is very tenacious and has had significant um, growth over the season. Um, she actually had a run with a porcupine, and so she was a little bit um, struggling to get around, but it started to heal, and so even more people have been kind of watching that story unfold. There also is another young adult bear, 909, who is a descendant of another Fat Bear Week champion, 49 Bead Nose. And the sub-adult and the spring cub will actually be going against each other on Thursday at the competition. Um, so these two young bears are, you know, possibilities of bears that may ultimately become the champion of Fat Bear Week, uh, as they have shown significant growth throughout the season. But there's also another fan favorite out there, 747, who is the largest bear on the river um, and was actually the runner-up in last season's Fat Bear Week. So we've got lots of choices this year that um, who knows, who knows who will be the, the reigning champion for the 2020 season. As you can imagine, it's not easy keeping track of each and every contestant in the Fat Bear Week competition, making sure that they've hit the minimum weight quota and ensuring that they can actually compete in the tournament. So I asked Brooklyn, what is that process like where you have to go out into the wild and follow these majestic creatures as they eat all throughout the summer? Oh, it is very difficult, especially in a season that has had limited staffing. Normally we have a few people that will be collecting photos throughout the season. Um, but it's been the other media ranger, Naomi Boak, has, that's been her mission throughout the season to collect photos of the bears the beginning of the year as they are just arriving on the river in their skinniest state. Um, and then her job right before leaving camp was to collect the fattest photos of these bears. So it's been one person really trying to collect all of these photos so we would have the comparisons for the competition. Um, but we're able to see the identification of these bears through um, the bear biologist team and the bear monitor. They'll be watching for the bears all season long and documenting the bears that show up. So they are the reason that we are able to identify these bears so easily on the river because they document um, the, the physical descriptions of the bears. They document the behaviors of the bears and have created this really fantastic catalog for us to go back um, because so many bears return year after year. So in conjunction with that biology team and the collection of photos through um, our other media ranger, we've been able to produce um, this bracket for the 2020 season. It's a strange thing to live in Vancouver, and 
hear all about the terrifying experiences most people have when it comes to confronting a bear in the wild, and now here I am trying to select which bear I think is fattest and cutest at the same time and putting my vote to use. But what has this done to the Katmai National Park and Preserve, where this idea that started a few years ago has absolutely exploded and become a viral sensation? Surely the park and preserve and the conservancy have all benefited from the internet paying attention. It does feel that way, and it is so exciting to see such broad exposure, not just for the U.S., but across the globe. Um, Katmai is such a remote park. It can only be accessed by boat or plane, and so it limits the number of people that will ever have the chance to actually experience uh, the bears, the salmon, the volcanoes that are found within the park boundaries. So Fat Bear Week has provided a way to connect with this broader audience Um, that we really didn't have before. You know, people may not ever see our social media posts or get to visit the park, but this is a really great way for them to connect and learn about the resources that we are so excited about um, through a really fun but interactive way. It's also provided um, a way for the Conservancy, which is our nonprofit fundraising partner, to support us better and to be able to share even more outreach than um, sometimes we are able to. So it really has been so exciting to continue to connect with such a broad audience and to see this growth outside of just um, the U.S. Just one question remains. What happens after the end of the tournament and we found out who the Fat Bear Champion of 2020 is going to be? Is it spiritual, symbolic in nature, or does somebody actually go and visit that champion bear and drop off a final supply of salmon, and whatever it is that grizzly bears like to eat? Um, I would say it's symbolic. There's no official prize that's designated, but knowing that a bear has been able to put on so much fat as a way to survive hibernation is really a prize in itself. Being able to feast on the salmon buffet that is before them um, truly is that crowning achievement of the bear that will be crowned um, Fat Bear Week Champion. You'll have a lot of reasons to be voting and exercising your democratic right over the next few weeks, but perhaps nothing greater than the future of Fat Bear Week 2020. The brackets officially open this Wednesday. All right, that is uh, John Jang with Brooklyn White, who is the media ranger at uh, that park and uh, reserve. And John is on the line with us now. You know, reading up on bears, I don't know about you, John, but it's it's the life, really. Eating all day, every day, <laughs> 90 pounds, what is it, 90 pounds of food each day, and then you just take a long nap. Yeah, absolutely. And your job throughout the winter is to just sleep through everything. It's the biggest food coma that I think Mother Nature could possibly think of. So I love the idea of celebrating these fat bears and doing really good work for the uh, the preserve in the park and everyone associated with it. Yeah, and raising awareness about the importance of them and having a little fun at their expense, but not in a way that we're going to make them feel bad because they're supposed to be doing all of this. Exactly. And the internet is already in love with, uh, she mentioned Holly 435's cub. Uh, The photos kind of got released on the internet and the internet has already affectionately named it the chubby cubby. And it might be the dark horse in this, well, rather the dark bear in this tournament. (laughs) Now, you might have covered this in the interview, but uh, obviously people are going online. You're not expected to go and uh, look at the bears in person before you cast your ballot. Can anybody cast a ballot? Anybody. This is why it's so popular. It's it's blown up on the internet. It doesn't matter where you live. If you have access to the, to the internet, uh, you can vote by going on explore.org and looking up Fat Bear Week. <laughs> so it start, officially starts on uh, Wednesday. Are you going to vote? 
Absolutely. This past uh, few hours, I've just been diving into all the contestants, trying to learn about who they are and why I should be voting for them, the the campaign platforms that they might be uh, pro- promising over the next few weeks. But uh, no, I think my, my vote's pretty simple. Who's the fattest, but also the cutest? You have to have equilibrium. <laughs> All right. Uh, I sense that we're going to have to do an update on this uh, once all the voting has uh, taken place. It is a nice uh, little reprieve or a nice little detour from talking about the other election and voting that's uh, taking place in B.C. at least. John, thank you so much. And we will chat with you tomorrow. You got it. Thank you.